Well, if you would uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and we are going to, together as a church, continue to, uh, to delight in these truths of God's grace, the truths that we have sung about. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and one of our ushers in the back would love to give you one. And uh, my wife and I, on Friday night, we were just like surprised by this little dinner out on a, a deck of one of our members, a rooftop deck downtown. And it's something that uh, some of you guys put together and had uh, amazing food and a number of letters from members appreciating us and surprise pop-ins of people appreciating us. And uh, so all that to say, we appreciate you. So thank you for that. And it was very kind of you all who participated in that. Uh, feel very undeserving of appreciation uh, because it is only by God's grace that I can do anything. And uh, so I do appreciate the grace of God. Well, let's turn to Matthew 12 this morning and um, read... Chapter 12, verses 38 through 50. I'm going to read, uh, read and ask you to follow along in your Bible. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And by the way, that is a reference to the scripture reading out of Second Chronicles that we heard earlier in the service. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes... It shall find the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside and asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us, to teach us this morning. Father, we ask that the Spirit would come, Lord, and awaken us uh, new passions, new yearnings that we would have uh, your spirit do something in our hearts that we cannot do for ourselves. And that is to point us to Jesus. 
God, teach us this morning from your word. And I pray that you would use me as a conduit, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. All right, we're going to play a little game as we get rolling today. That siren has nothing to do with it. We're going to play a uh, whose parent is this game, all right? Uh, So, Kwame, if you could put the first slide up. Whose parent, if you know the answer, you're not allowed to answer. Just based on the looks of this pretty woman right here, whose parent is this? Anybody? Come on. Who does it look like? Come on, we need some bold shouting. When are you guys somebody? Who are you looking at? Somebody's point. You pointed this guy right here? Winnie, you got it. You, I wish I, I should have prizes. I should have prizes. You get an extra cup of coffee today, all right? That's Paul's mom. They look alike, don't they? Um, all right, we got another one. Whose parent, whose parents are these? Unfortunately, she's not in here. Where is she? Well, I just gave you a hint. Anybody? Let me give you a hint. She's, it's a female. It's not Julie. She, she has blonde hair. She's tall. I was going to say, come on now. <laughs> Megan, this is Mer- Megan's parents. Don't you see the resemblance? All right, we'll do another one. Here you go. Whose parent is this? Mantra. Mantra. That's an easy one. Like father, like son. All right, one more. Whose parent, whose mother and grandfather is this? Mine, you got it. Excellent. All right, so I want to talk to you today on the theme family resemblance. Because we tend to resemble our family members, don't we? I could have gone on with all of your family members because you just pull somebody and you, and you look at their parent and you're like, wow, I can see the resemblance. Or maybe a sibling. Sometimes even more so, you get that perfect mix of father and mother and you really see in siblings often resemblance. You look like that individual. Now, we are in Matthew chapter 12 today, and we have been in Matthew 11 and Matthew 12, we have been dealing with or examining various responses to Jesus. So here comes Jesus Christ, and what we're seeing is what Matthew's doing for us in his gospel is he's showing us really the whole variety of responses. It's kind of, his gospel's kind of organized topically. And so the topic right now is the responses to Christ. How do people respond to him? And what we're seeing today is the response of those who ask for a sign. But it's in some ways it's even more than that and it's even deeper than that. We're going to get into what this means that they asked for a sign. But really what we're going to see is that it's the response of imitators. It's the response of imitation. It's the response of those who look a lot like God's family. But as you really examine, they really don't resemble the father or the son, their older brother. And then Jesus, after he deals with this, he turns the corner for us and he shows us who his family members actually are. And in some ways, he's redefining the entire concept of the family of God. This is who the family is. And these 
are the imitators. This is the imitation. And so for us to understand, before we get to the definition of who the family of Jesus actually is, I want to just spend some time with Jesus here, and I want to see, uh, uh, examine his uh, revealing, if you would, of the imitation. He opens up for us the fact that there are imitators of this family, and they are fully revealed for us in this passage. Are you with me? You sure? You guys seem a little tired this morning. We good? All right. He reveals the imitators, so let's just walk through it fairly quickly here. First, the imitators' excuses are revealed. The imitators' excuses are revealed. So they ask for a sign, correct? You might remember me I, I, uh, sharing a story some months ago of a young woman that I was sharing the gospel with. And she said, look, if, if, uh, if I had a sign, like if you did a miracle like right in front of me, then I might believe. Or if I saw somebody like before my eyes die and then rise from the dead, then I might believe. Like I would believe if God showed me a sign. Like why doesn't he just do something miraculous in front of me to prove that, he's, uh, that, that, that he exists. This is a question that a lot of people ask. If God is real, if the gospel's true, if Jesus Christ is indeed God, why doesn't God just like open up some kind of paranormal world for me and let me just see something? My response to her was this. You still wouldn't believe you still wouldn't believe. Like right now, if, I, if somebody walked in here uh, with, 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 without an arm, and I touched them and an arm grew, you still wouldn't believe. You would say something's crazy with me. You might say that I'm demon-possessed. You still wouldn't believe. If someone ro- died and rose from the dead, you still wouldn't believe. How do I know that? It's because someone died and rose from the dead, and people still didn't believe. Why don't they believe? It's because, and this is what I told you, your heart's cold. You need, to, you need God, you need to ask God to soften and warm your heart. So here are these Pharisees, these religious leaders in verse 38. And just a reminder, the Pharisees are sort of the religious establishment of the day, protecting the law, enforcing morality. And they come along and they say, we want to see a sign from you in verse 38. Now, their, their request for a sign is not like some innocent, like I'm looking for validation that you are indeed the coming one. I mean, because we could step back and we could remember John the Baptist also asked, are you the coming one? And Jesus responded with what? Signs. Exactly. Jesus gave him the signs. He said, look, don't, don't you remember the signs? Don't you see the signs? And John, what did he do? He saw those signs. He received that as confirmation that Jesus is indeed the coming one, and he believed. The thing is with the Pharisees is they've had a hundred signs right in front of their face. I mean, they have been hit with sign after sign after sign, and they still don't believe. What this is is not innocent, an innocent 
request. Jesus, could you help us? Could you really show us that you are indeed the Savior? As if they want to believe. No, this is just simply an excuse for them not to believe. The various responses to Jesus we have already seen are uh, the, the, the fact that people are disappointed by Jesus because he's not who they thought the Messiah would be. People are disinterested in Jesus because they don't think they need a Savior. People are judgmental with Jesus because he doesn't follow all of the man-made traditions and rules. People are scheming against Jesus, trying to trip him up and prove that he's not the Messiah. And then last week we saw this unpardonable sin in which they blaspheme against the very Holy Spirit that is revealing that Jesus is the Savior, and they have turned away from their only hope. And that is unforgivable because there's only forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And so what they're doing here is really nothing more than just making excuses. We just need another sign. Just keep giving us signs. You haven't given us enough signs. And so Jesus in verse 39 refuses to give him a sign. Why? He refuses for three reasons. First, He refuses because asking for a sign is just an excuse to not believe. It's what I call a a smokescreen. It's just, it's it's saying, this is what I have to grapple with, Jesus, if you are indeed the Lord, and I'm just going to continue to put one thing after another in front of that so that I don't ever have to ask the hard question about your identity and what that means for me. It's just an excuse. Secondly, Jesus has already given all of the signs they need. This is why he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. It's almost as if a a, a man is married to his wife and she's not enough. He's not happy with her. I need more than just one wife. And so he begins looking around and he says, can I have another wife? And can I have another wife? And And God is saying, I gave you this wife. You've got to trust me with the wife I gave you. You see what I'm saying? This isn't about marriage, but this is about signs. Jesus is saying, I've given you signs, and you're not happy with what I've given you, and you're constantly looking for something else. Signs are an excuse. uh, Jesus has given them all the signs they need, and and then also he says in verse 39 that there is this one ultimate miracle that is going to come. There's this one ultimate sign that's going to come, and he calls it the sign of Jonah. Jonah goes in the fish three days. Jonah is spit out of the fish on a dry land. What do you think the sign of Jonah is? Jesus. Jesus what in particular? What aspect? Dying and resurrecting. This is the point of the story of Jonah. It's the sign of Jonah. That there's one prophet, a greater prophet, who's going to go into into the belly of the earth and then be puked out three days later. And Jesus says that is the ultimate sign, and that is the sign that is coming. Let me explain it in this way. Maybe this would help the kids who are in the room understand it. So kids in the room... You know that outside of our building here, we have signs that show you how to get into the door. Have you seen those? They're blue signs in the yard and on the sidewalk. Are they out there today? Did anybody put the signs out? Okay, good, good. So what if, what if somebody comes along and they're trying, uh, they, they, they say at least that they want to come and worship, 
with the church on Sunday. And they, the, the signs are there, and they get all the way up to the door, and there's a big sign right in front of the door that says, The Garden Church, like this way, right? And they're looking at the door, and they're looking at the stairs, and they're saying, you know, if, if you just gave me a sign that this is where the church is, I would go in. And they walk away. And they say, just give me a sign. And you say, I'm not going to give you another sign. There's a sign right there. That's, what, that's what's happening here with these, these people who are requesting signs. They're just imitators. They're, they're false. They're fakes. They're, they're, they're making excuses. They're skeptics. Skeptics will always ask for signs. Oh, if he would just do this. If God would just do this. If he would, you fill in the blank. You know what I'm talking about. If God would... What? Then I would believe. And unfortunately, a lot of times, Christians do this too. Christians, like, we crave, like, books about little boys that go to heaven and back. Or stories about someone who died and, and they experienced heaven and they come back. Why? It's, and then I actually heard somebody talking about this and they said, they said, after reading that, I really then believed. It was, it was evidence for me that heaven is, is real my response was, that's not the sign that God was giving us. You're saying you need additional signs to have evidence that your faith is real. God has given us a sign. We don't need to be looking for more signs. We don't need to be looking for stories of people who have had experiences that are where, I don't know, they have coffee with Jesus or something like that, and they go to the O's game together, right? And now Jesus is real because he roots for the Orioles, right? We don't need additional signs. We don't need the writing on the wall. We have been given all the signs that we need. The fulfillment of prophecies, the personal work of Jesus Christ, the miracles of Jesus Christ and His apostles. We've been given the sign, the ultimate sign of His resurrection. And listen, friends, your evangelism with people is often just simply pointing people to the signs. It's just reminding, showing people in the Scripture, these, here are signs. Here are signs. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to examine the signs. Examine the sign of the resurrection. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And if he did, we've got to deal with him. And if he didn't, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, don't worry about it. Moving on. So, the, so these imitators' excuses are revealed. Secondly, the imitators' entitlement is revealed. Everybody say the word entitlement. Their entitlement is revealed. Don't you love people who are just entitled? Right? We love entitled people, right? Here's what I mean. Let me give you an example. A friend of mine works in Washington, D.C. He will go unnamed because I don't want to get him in trouble. Works in D.C. and he works very closely with a young woman who is a relative of an extremely famous politician. She got the job. Why? All right, you see where this is going? See what I'm talking about with entitlement? So my friend says she is the hardest person to work with in the office in D.C. Um, she creates problems, endless controversies. She's a gossip. She doesn't do any work. She doesn't pull her own weight. She comes up with goofy ideas and gets angry when people don't follow them. 
And you know what? She's never going to get fired. And there's nothing that he can do about it. And because she has a family connection. She's got her job. She's in her position because she has a family. That's called entitlement. I just feel entitled to this because of who my dad is, because of who my uncle is. These Pharisees are entitled. They're coming along with this family connection. We've got Abraham. We've got the flesh. We are entitled to God's kingdom. And so nobody, even this Jesus figure, can keep us out. It's ours. There is this sense of entitlement that they are coming with, and I'll explain it to you from the text, show you where I'm getting that, 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 that from. Um, look at verses 41 and 42. Jesus references these old stories of Nineveh, Jonah and the whale, or the big fish, and Nineveh, and then the queen of, uh, of the south, otherwise known as the queen of Sheba. So in verse 41 in the text, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now, let me just remind you briefly of Jonah. Jonah was like the fearful, running, rebellious prophet. Like He's preaching in Nineveh just because he has to. God swallowed him up with a big fish and spit him out And so now he preaches reluctantly, and then he is sour and bitter as they repent. And Jesus is saying this, do you guys realize that Jonah, or I'm sorry, the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah? And the one who is greater than Jonah is here? The greater prophet, the willing prophet? The delightful prophet, the prophet who longs for your repentance, is here and you're rejecting him? Oh, the Ninevites are going to rise up against you. You just wait. The Ninevites are going to have a couple words to say to you. He goes on, verse 42, and he talks about the queen of Sheba, going back to 2 Chronicles. She is the queen, most likely, of Ethiopia. Way back in the days of Solomon. She hears this, this wonderful word of, what God is doing in Israel with Solomon, with all of this wisdom and wealth. And of course, TV and and social media doesn't exist then, so she has to travel to Israel to meet this Solomon figure. And so she does that, and she gets there, and and she's just blown away with with seeing his wealth and seeing his wisdom, and she worships God as a result. And I think probably takes that back to Ethiopia, which explains the Ethiopian eunuch about a thousand years later. And, she, and the text is saying in verse 42, he's saying, look, the queen of, uh, of the south, the queen of Sheba, she is, she is going to turn over in her grave, as my mother would say. She is going to rise up against you. Because she believed seeing Solomon, the one who not just has wisdom, but is the embodiment of wisdom, the one who has all wealth is standing before you and has given you these signs and you're rejecting the greater Solomon. 
the queen is going to have something to say to you. Getting a little deeper into this so you can see even more the entitlement that I'm talking about. Look at the story, that, or look where Jesus goes at the end, this little uh, scene. Uh, what happens at the end here is verse 46 through 50. Jesus is still speaking and his, uh, his, his family comes to see him, like his physical Mary and his brothers. Physical family. They come to visit him and at this time, you know, Jesus is very popular. There's a big crowd around him. And they can't get near him while he's, while he's teaching. And for some reason, they want to talk to him. Maybe they, they're afraid. Maybe they're con- getting concerned about, them, about him them, themselves. We don't know. But they want to talk to Jesus. And so they ask his disciples, hey, can we talk with Jesus? And that word comes to Jesus. Your mom and your brothers are outside, and they want to have a word with you. And Jesus has this, this re- funny response he says, who are my, mo- my mother and my brothers? Who are they? Really? And he uses this. It's, look, he loves his family. We see Jesus on the cross taking care of his mother. Uh, he loves his, this is nothing against his physical family. He's just using this opportunity to make a point. Who are my mother? Who are my brothers? Let me tell you. And he points at his disciples in verse 50. And he said, these are my mother mother and brother and sister. These. What he's saying is this. Imitators, you are entitled because of the flesh. Because you have this family connection. But it's not the family connection that really makes you a brother of Jesus Christ. It's not the family connection that really makes you, or the, the fleshly connection, I should say. The fle- it's not the fleshly connection that really makes you part of the family of God. Because even the Ninevites repented. Even the Queen of Sheba down south, she repented. You see, he's using these Gentiles as examples of people who have genuine, legit repentance and faith, holding them up against the self-righteous, entitled uh, Pharisees. The Gentiles are going to speak. Don't you see what's going on here? Look, nobody is born a Christian. Nobody is born a Christian. Whenever I ask somebody, how did you become a Christian? And they respond with, well, I was born a Christian. I, I immediately get concerned. I'm not saying they're not a Christian, but I've got to hear more. Because nobody's born a Christian. We don't just come out the womb repenting of our sins, believing in Jesus. No, we become Christians. We are converted, we are changed. Parents in the room, your kids are extremely important and wonderful, and it is a blessing to to them that they have you, parents, who teach them the gospel. But don't just assume that that, that your children are in the kingdom. We as parents have to teach the kids the gospel. And family, as a church, those of you who are part of this church who don't have children, you love our kids, you've got to help us teach our kids the gospel. Nobody's just entitled because of family connections. I I would say to the kids in the room, 
your parents' faith is, is wonderful, but it's got to be your faith. Nobody just naturally through the flesh enters into the kingdom. Moving on. The imitator's excuse is revealed. The imitator's entitlement is revealed. And thirdly, the, imi the imitator's emptiness is revealed. Let me use my cup as an example. I wish I had an empty cup. Does anybody have an empty cup I could borrow? Come on, somebody hit me with an empty cup really quick. There we go. All right. So we got an empty cup. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, empty cup. Um, let's say um, that... I am going to give you a wonderful drink of, somebody, help me out, water. water. It's free. The best things in life are free. And, um, and so I get Paul's cup, but it's dirty, right? And so I clean it up, right? And I clean it out, and I, clean, I make a really nice clean cup for you. I use soap even. Anybody ever use that? Comes in like a little thing. And I make a really nice clean cup. And then I give it to you. What's the problem? It's empty. That's the problem. I didn't put water in it. That's the problem. That's the problem. They've cleaned everything up. But they're empty. Oh, I'm good. Thank you. Look, check it out. The self-righteous, the Pharisees, these religious leaders in this text, they have cleaned everything up, but they are spiritually empty. They offer nothing. I, I'm getting this from this, this uh, analogy that Jesus uses here in verses 43 through verse 45. It's this analogy of an unclean spirit who comes out of a person and then uh, says uh, he, he can't find a place to go. He can't find another person to go into. And so this demon uh, says, I'm going to go back to the house that I came from because it's swept, it's put in order, it's been cleaned, but it's empty. There's no Holy Spirit in it. And so I'm going to enter back into that house. And when he comes, he comes with seven other spirits, even more wicked than the first. And the person is in worse state than he was prior. Now, this isn't a how-to manual on exorcisms. All right, we shouldn't spend so much time looking at this, trying to figure out how to exercise your, your friend who's, like, lost it, all right? Jesus is using this as an analogy to talk about the self-righteous imitators. He's saying, look, and here, here's my, my take on it. I might be wrong, but I'm going to give you my best shot. What he's saying, I think, is this. Israel was in a pretty bad shape, was in pretty bad shape. They were completely rebellious, given over to idolatry, and swept away by Babylon. Remember that? Israel, by God's grace, has come back into the promised land. Through this new moral revolution over the past hundred years, these Pharisees have now taken, taken this moral uh, higher ground, and, and the law in some ways has been, uh, been recovered. And the Pharisees are now, in this new way, cleaning everything up and making sure that we're following the law, that everybody's obeying the law and hoping that maybe the Messiah will come. So we're in a better state now. We're, we're cleaned up, right? The oppressor is no more. But then he says this. 
Because you are empty, it's only going to get worse. And I think there he's referring to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 when the Roman Empire just completely sacks Jerusalem. Meaning there is more oppression coming than you can ever imagine. Right now, you have a time. You have an opportunity. Your house is empty and your house could be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, but you're rejecting it. The imitator's emptiness is here revealed. The point is this. Imitators look a lot like family, but they're false. They're cheap imitations. You might know some imitators. You might have experienced people who have imitated brother and sister in Christ. They have said the words. They came across really well, but, but they were empty. And it broke your heart. Sometimes I'll have people ask me, like, how is it possible that Christianity is true when 150, 200, 300 years ago, churches, in the, particularly in the South, were condoning, not only condoning slavery, but using the Scriptures to propagate slavery. Slave owners who claimed to be Christian that, that used the Bible and twisted it. So then how is Christianity possible? My response is that's a good example of imitation Christianity. Like that, we got to call it what it was. It was false religion. I mean, it looked a lot like the church. They had people sitting in pews. They had steeples on their building. But it was a false religion. It was empty. Or uh, even today, I'll uh, have people come in as, as a new member of the church and and they'll have a testimony, something like this. Like, I grew up in church my entire life. I was part of the praise team. I was, I was highly involved in a lot of ministries. Like, I spent four or five days a week in the church. But I, I never knew the gospel. I was never taught the gospel. And I'm just now understanding the gospel. How is that possible? It's because there are a lot of groups of people. They get together in buildings with steeples that are empty. They look like churches. But they're imitating the family of God. So let's just briefly end here. What, who then is the family of God? Look at Jesus' response to all of this. He, he has this opportunity. His mother's brothers comes, and Jesus says, you know what, who, who really is my family? And Jesus says, let me tell you. He points to his disciples and he says, these, these are my family members. Look at verse 50. I love the way he says it. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever, singular, is my brother and sister and mother. Notice he doesn't say my brother or sister or mother. He says, you are, you are, Paul, you are, Andrea, you are, Keisha, you are, my brother and sister and mother. You are the whole of it. Meaning, I think what he's saying here is this. The, the, the sum of my affections for family is applied to every single disciple of mine. I love you with that kind of family intensity in the way that I love my entire family. Christ loves you. Has set His affections on you. You are His family. 
Who is it? Whoever, he says, does the will of the Father. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's very clear. John chapter 6, verse 40 says this. John says, this is the will of the Father. So what is the will of the Father? I'm about to tell you. John says, this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and be raised from the dead. That is the will of the Father, that we would look upon Jesus and that we would believe in Him and that we would be saved and that we would be raised on that final day. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus has turned us from imitation to intimacy. Imitation family member to an intimate brother and sister and mother and father. God has for all time been in the business of saving a family. God has been redeeming a family. And still today, God is redeeming His global, worldwide family through Jesus Christ. And it consists of all kinds of people. It consists of people who are single and people who are married. It consists of kids and it consists of old people and it consists of unemployed people and it consists of rich people and it consists of people of European descent and African descent and Asian descent and South American descent. It consists of all kinds of people. Every tongue and every tribe shall bow before the throne of this Lamb and shall forever sing praises worshiping His name. We are the unified family of God. It's divided out there and it's unified in here. Why? It's because the blood of Jesus Christ flows through us. It's because we are, uh, are united not by physical family ties, but by spiritual family ties. That's what unites us. We look physically different from each other, but the more and more we follow our older brother, Jesus Christ, the more we resemble him and the more we actually begin to resemble each other. We look like each other. And we encourage one another. We, we, we edify, we, we motivate, and we equip one another for good works in Jesus Christ so that the body of Christ might be built up so that we might indeed be conformed to the image of our older brother, Jesus Christ. That is family resemblance. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we could look into your word and be reminded that we are indeed genuine family members of Jesus Christ, not because of our ethnicity, not because of our own flesh, not because of the works that we have done, but it's according to your grace that you have saved us. Thank you for including us in your family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.